Hey everybody, this is Adam. Just want to give a real quick disclaimer before we get on with the episode that we had some audio troubles on this particular one. Skype dropped out and we couldn't get it to come back. So in the last roughly five to 10 minutes, you're going to hear audio that sounds just a bit different. That's because I called Dylan's cell phone and we finished up the interview there instead of doing it on Skype. Anyway, the content is still good. Uh, You'll just have to overlook the different audio sound. Enjoy the episode. Makers of Sport Podcast, episode 78 with Dylan Boyd. Hello and welcome to episode 78 of the Makers of Sport podcasts. I'm your host, Adam Martin, at T. Adam Martin on Twitter. For those of you that are new to the show, you may notice that there is a skip in episode numbers, and that is actually because the halftime episodes are now for community members only. At makersofsport.com slash community, you can join and support the podcasts where you'll receive all of those future halftime episodes as well as the previous ones, along with their transcriptions, access to live Q&As with future former and special guests, monthly Google Hangouts, and especially an invite to the Slack channel where there are currently representatives from multiple NFL and college teams, as well as brands such as Adidas, New Balance, Sports Illustrated, ESPN, and more. And now on to the business of today's show. I'm very happy to welcome Dylan Boyd to the podcast today, a Portland, Oregon native, Dylan has been focused on growing businesses and products for nearly 20 years. Currently, he is the managing director of the Los Angeles Dodgers Accelerator, a startup accelerator in partnership with the digital agency RGA that focuses on bringing business design and technology resources to innovative early stage companies leading the sports and entertainment industries. Prior to the Dodgers Accelerator, Dylan ran the Nike Plus Accelerator, which was powered by Techstars, another popular startup accelerator that has invested in and helped launch many technology companies. In addition, Dylan is an advisor to many startups and has built innovation programs bridging startups to corporate partnerships with Disney, Barclays, Sprint, and more. Welcome to the show, Dylan. Thanks for taking the time to come aboard the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me today. It's great great to join you. So I gave a bit of a brief overview of your career in the intro to the show, but I like to give the guests this opportunity to go a little bit more in depth on their own stories. Can you tell us how you got into this crazy tech startup world and then maybe describe your path leading to RGA and the Dodgers Accelerator? Yeah, and maybe that's it. To boil it down a little bit, um, I started actually right out of college um, building technology solutions back in, what, 96, 97? Um, of all the unsexy places, the real estate market, um, and got to learn how to build. I mean, and taught myself how to code. Uh, that really wasn't anything I studied in school. And uh, trial by fire. I remember uh, taking over my first website. It was a massive project, and taking over my entire living room, which maybe should have been the first sign that my wife was going to stick with me through this whole thing. Um, with I printed out every single page in the website uh, that I wanted to build. Basically, it was a, a wireframe and a sitemap, which became my, my house. 
Um, but I went from there to start a, a company back in 98 uh, in kind of what we're seeing in AR and VR now with 360 video and, and tours uh, around that space. A lot of sports venues and uh, entertainment venues, hotels, uh, live sports with the NBC, uh, a bunch of different things in the technology space there. What really got me into the really working with startups was building a digital agency. Uh, when I built a digital agency in the early 2000s, a lot of companies and founders were coming to me saying, how do we work with this new startup that we just read about? Or how can we build this company that we just got funding for? Uh, and it was amazing how people got funded back then. And it ended up a lot of it was myself and my team doing the development, design, the user experience, uh, everything. Uh, from there, went into uh, work with a few startups like Urban Airship, uh, building out early stage teams and business development and growth and marketing and sales, uh, to going on to Techstars, uh, which started the accelerator path, was building the Nike Accelerator. Uh, and that was the first kind of vertical accelerator program for uh, Techstars of understanding how corporate programs could work with them and their model. And I went on from there to work on Barclays and Sprint and Disney and uh, Ford and uh, R even RGA. And that's how it brought me to RGA. Uh, I built out the RGA IoT hardware accelerator here in New York City, uh, where I'm sitting today uh, in this amazing new space. And from there, it was a path of uh, RGA wanted to build out a ventures unit after the success of doing this program understanding how, to, how it worked, uh, really to get serious about it and bringing this innovation across RGA's internal employees, across RGA's global clients and partners, uh, and then across the IPG holding organization, which is the holding corporation above RGA with their 90-some you know, other agencies they own. So it just kept growing. Um, you know, path, I don't know if there was a path. There was a lot of right. choose your own adventure, rights and lefts, um, and figure out which way to go. Uh, I, I think I've been very fortunate to be able to have choices over time. And, you know, and a lot of that is the hard work and the hustle that we expect founders to put in to open up as many doors as they can. But that's what brings us our choices. Cool. So, and just to confirm for listeners that, uh, I've obviously been stating that I'm having someone from the Dodgers Accelerator come on. You are actually employed by the agency RGA. We can talk about the business model later, but just to confirm, you actually are an employee of RGA. RGA employee and uh, managing director last year of the Dodgers Accelerator. So the RGA Accelerator, I mean, you were there, so you were there for its inception then. The RGA Ventures? I sat with Stephen Plumley actually in uh conference room in San Francisco before we even built the first hardware IoT accelerator here in New York uh, shortly after demo day of the Nike accelerator and talked about how it could work. That's cool. So uh, is that sort of how RGA became, because it almost seems like RGA is one of the first agencies that's that really got into the investment game. I mean, I know that there's probably some more now. Was that sort of what brought them on? Because I know that Nike was a client. Yeah, I think that investment's one way. There's always been a lot of agencies that have done investment, whether it's through services or through cash or through all sorts of things. Um, we've seen AKQA, we've seen Publicis, we've seen RGA, we've seen, there's been a lot. But what's been really different is the approach that RGA takes. So, you know, there's, there's, there's capital, you know, as we say, there's money and there's smart money. Well, there's, we believe there's capital, like money, 
but there's also creative capital. And that's really what RGA is bringing on both sides of it. Uh, it's not only the, the money, which every you know, founder always, always likes, uh, but also the creative capital of bringing RGA, our services, our teams, our global programs, uh, our global partners uh, to uh, work with these companies. And that's what's actually making the biggest difference. Um, you know, it's really something that is not, you know, if I would, don't want to belittle anyone else's efforts, but, you know, not the let's just write a check to them and we're investors and right. forget about it. This is actually hands on. I mean, I'm, we've got here in the, in the New York space I'm in today, um, we've got six teams that, that work here uh, full time, you know, from companies we've funded. Uh, we're providing them space to work out of. We're providing them introductions into brands and customers. We're bringing them into pitches. We're helping with the business development. We're helping with everything they're doing, and not from a you know pay us mentality, but you know let's build great companies and like true partners along the way. So we know that if we do great things and help them grow, uh, you know, a returns down the road, right? Three, five, seven, ten years. Uh, if we do all the right things up front, we might see some of that return in some way and, you know, if it's an exit or if it's just a return in the, the value they bring to the, the big brands and the partners and the innovation we want to lead. Uh, there's right. a lot of ways to win. Well, it's interesting. I, I like that that line that you stated, there's money and there's smart money. And I've always sort of heard just kind of running in startup circles myself. I mean, not, by no means am I trying to raise funding or anything, but you know, like a, a colleague of mine, we've been sort of toying this idea of, of experimenting with the startup accelerator in our area, sports base. And you and I actually had a conversation about this off record a while ago. Yeah. Uh, but it, it almost seems like that it, what we've been told by people that have raised funding is like, take the, the money's the easy part almost. And that everybody's, you know, you can, you can raise money, but to get the right partners, that's like the key. That's the key. I mean, we've seen so many people, and it's tough being a founder. It's tough raising money. I mean, I remember in a company we built, I, mean, I think I had 32 no's until we got a yes. Um, and that, that crushes your soul. Uh, you just have to be strong. At some point in time, you're going to take money. Uh, but when given a choice to take smart money or creative capital, um, it really does change the outcome. Uh, that's, that's what we've seen so far. And, you know, you know, to have somebody dig into your business that can be helpful as opposed to have someone that dig into your business that this is a side project or this is a hobby while they're not on the golf course uh, from an angel or super angel or an institutional investor, you know, to be someone that, that matters inside of a portfolio as opposed to just another portfolio investment. Um, you know, I think it's really important to figure out your internal strategy when you go in and, and your internal strategy from who you're raising from. Um, it makes it a whole lot easier when you have partners along the way than it does just someone writing a check. And maybe that's what some founders want. So it's really up to them. But from my experience, it makes a big difference. So to kind of circle back just a little bit, there's a lot of uh, I'm going to get elementary for you real quick. I warned you a little bit about this before the show. There are a lot of creative individuals that listen to the show that are designers and maybe developers, video professionals, motion uh, graphics artists, and that type of thing. But a lot of them tend to be grinding away in a in-house at a day-to-day for maybe a team, a professional team, or even maybe a smaller agency. 
um, they might not necessarily be that familiar with the startup industry itself. I, I think when you, when a lot of times people say startups, they automatically resort to the most famous ones, Facebook, Twitter, right? And I mean, of course now, Facebook now, it's been around for what, 11 years? So it's almost hard mm-hmm. to even call that a, st- a startup. But they it's don't realize- Right, right. So they don't actually realize that there are actually thousands of startups out there in in the world in completely different industries, different vertical markets, many of whom might be B2B. Can you just explain to listeners, because you work in a, you, you are managing director of a startup accelerator, what is a startup accelerator and why do you think we're seeing so much growth of them around the world? Well, I think, you know, everybody, I, it boils down, everyone needs mentorship, right? And to have vertical you know, uh, expertise to surround your business. Let's say you're building an ag tech company, right? You want to find vertical expertise and people that live within that world. You want to find a mentor that knows everyone at, um, you know, the tractor company, everyone that knows someone at a farming company, everyone that knows some, you know, whatever the the vertical might be in ag tech. Um, Maybe you're building a drone product for the ag ag, uh, world. You know, you want someone with aeronautics experience, farming experience. You want to find the right people. And we've seen that Vertically focused accelerators. I mean, there's a great new one that's in logistics and transportation out of Tennessee, where the founders, that's their background. I mean, that, that whole hub of Tennessee where they built this, uh, that's what they've done before. That's they've sold their, their logistics company around this. And there's, you know, good or, good or bad. If you watch the show Silicon Valley ever on HBO, yep. um, right? That's, that's what a lot of people think of the incubator or accelerator model as somebody that's just trying to surround themselves by a bunch of uh, startup companies, one, two, three, four people that is looking for $5,000, $10,000, $25,000 and a place to work. Um, and it's really, you know, what we've seen in the accelerator models are successful are ones that are looking at the vertical side of it, you know, software as a platform, people are looking at it from a robotic standpoint, people looking from a hardware standpoint, people looking from a healthcare standpoint. Um, there's so many different ways. And, and why are there so many? Because, you know, software, as they said, software ate the world a few years ago. And now everything you see and do revolves around software. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you have any, if you have children or see children, their world is completely around software. Yeah. Uh, from the moment they wake up to their relationships, to the whether it's a Snapchat or a Netflix or a video game, this is how they communicate. This is how they live. So we're seeing this vertical expertise actually been being very successful, and I think that it really helps everyone win. Um, you know, I look at the Dodgers program around sport and entertainment and the mentors that we've surrounded that with are very deep whether it's from leagues or teams or esports or video games or athlete uh, healthcare whatever it might be we've gone very deep with the mentors there and another program around you know retail and commerce in San Francisco that is really focused around all those depth and breadth the people from Starbucks and Disney and LVMH and uh, Macy's and Nike and you name it uh, People that have the experience, it, it, we're seeing it's giving startups an unfair advantage around accelerators. And whether it's an accelerator or an incubator or a studio or whatever one wants to call it, there can all sorts of flavors. Um, I think for the creative standpoint, right, to kind of go back to what you talked about, a lot of people that listen to this, there's a lot of ways where they can get involved there, whether it's through a mentorship whether it's from, hey, I'm tired of working on the same three customers a day. I need something else to challenge me, to take me outside of the box. 
I mean, I look at the giant brands that we work with around the world and the work that we do is I, I love and the people here are challenged every day, but they love the opportunity to go work on one of the projects we're working on in Los Angeles or one of the projects we're working on in San Francisco or Berlin or other cities. And it's that opportunity to help and to mentor from a design perspective, from a user experience perspective, right? From an so, analytics perspective. Let me interrupt you there real quick. In that instance, these people... Uh, you know, obviously they they come from the services side. They've been doing creating services for many years, and obviously when we go to school as graphic designers, we're sort of taught you're going to make things for other people, and we never are really kind of pushed to make things for ourselves. Maybe that's like that in almost every industry, honestly, because entrepreneurship is kind of a funny thing like that. But are when they come in and want to be a mentor, is that something where there's where they can come in and say, "Hey, I will I will mentor your company, and I'll sort of art direct or creative direct and look at." kind of this brand strategy and the way that you're going, are they at, is that something viable to ask for equity in since you're doing that? Because you're essentially providing a service or how would that work? <laughs> it, there's no right answer. It depends. Um, typically, if you want to be involved and mentor someone, I, I never would recommend going in first saying this is a, this is a fee-for-service type of thing. Um, where if you wanted to go in and work with, with startups, we have a we have a program called Pi, the Portland Incubator Experiment in Portland, Oregon, that was started by Weidman Kennedy quite a few years ago, big ad agency. But it's surrounded with the creative talents from all over Portland by the startup talents. No one is there doing anything for any equity or any money. Um, and I would never start out with thinking that's what you're going to go do. I'm going to go work at an accelerator or a mentor at an accelerator, and I'm gonna, someone's going to pay me. Yeah. Um, that's really not the case. But what can come out of it, based upon how good of a mentor you are and how much value you provide, you could end up doing some work for possible money, being hired by one of the teams. Right. You could be doing the work for a point, right? A, a point of equity inside of it um, with a short investing ca- uh, calendar. You could do it for... Uh, for the program itself, I mean, you might become an in-house EIR from a graphic design standpoint or user experience standpoint, and that could be compensated by the incubator or the accelerator. They might want to add these professional services to there. Just to confirm, EIR is entrepreneur in residence, right? I just want because because there's some some terminology like IoT is Internet of Things. Some of the some of the people that listen to the show uh, may not understand what some of that stuff is, so I want to kind of so it would, like in our programs we bring in during the program a user experience designer. We bring in a graphic designer. Uh, we typically bring in a mobile uh, developer, right? whether it's from a front-end or back-end, depending on what our needs are. We actually bring those types of people to our program to work uh, you know, during the 90, 100 days uh, so that we have on, on-site resources just dedicated to any of the teams that we invest in that are there to help with that. Well, and we're actually seeing the term designer in residence now because uh, I think we True are. Ventures and uh, and uh, uh, what is it, Caulfield and Buyers, or what is that one, Caulfield and Buyers? Yep, Perkins. Uh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So there's 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 interesting thing if you look at these bigger firms, right? Your Andreessen's, your 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 all the your A sixteens, they're first round. You, they're starting to staff up with a professional services team to similar to what we do. Um, around helping their their companies in their portfolio, right? So for their perspective, if they have a head of software development, head of user experience, a head of recruiting, right? This is another reason why I want to let them into my A or B or C round. 
because they're going to bring to me domain expertise in helping either my team or helping uh, my company or helping one of the people on my team or helping fill a gap of someone I don't have on staff at that point in time. They might have a director, you know, an engineer in residence, which just helps me like uh, with engineering t- uh, problems. I actually have a friend, Ben, at, at First Round who does that. Um, and the designer in residence has become a big thing. And you look at uh, a science down in Los Angeles, right. you look at an, an expa in New York and LA, if you look at a beta works in New York, uh, or expo in San Francisco. Google Ventures. Google Ventures. You know, if you look at some of the great startup companies, and there's a lot of them, every agency wants to build a startup product, which I've, I hear over and over again. But if I look at us too, uh, Jules and the team at Us2 right. uh, built an amazing game. It was, you know, uh, th- and that was a side project. To Monument Valley? Game. Yes. Yeah, I'm addicted to that. <laughs> like $16 million, $16 million in sales as a side project. Uh, <laughs> and, they've, th- and they've thus spun out Us2 Games as its own business unit, saying, hey, we can do this, but it has to be separate from the agency. Well, and I actually I subscribed to their newsletter, and I remember getting a newsletter once where they talked about encouraging their people to start side businesses and side products, and they have things everything from that monument Monument Valley all the way down to a little hot sauce startup that a uh, one of the designers and his wife or something there mail out different. It's almost like Birch Box, like you subscribe right. to the box and you get different samples of hot sauce every month. You know, I think that that's just inherent in creative cultures, right? We're, we're always, we're photographers, we're artists, we're musicians. We're always doing other things that we're passionate about. Um, and a lot of these things, these side projects, right? Airbnb was a side project for a design firm. Right. Right? Became a big company. Um, we've seen a lot of these. There's a great company called Opal in Portland, Oregon, uh, which was a design company that was solving a challenge for Nike and stumbled upon an idea for a product. And now they're a you know, 70-person company serving Burberry's and Nike's and Starbucks and Target's with a software product. Right. And they're no longer an agency. And I think that we're actually at a really interesting place with design. I, th- I honestly feel like that there's no better time to be a designer than now because, number one, you're starting to see investment firms pick up designers, acquire design firms. You're starting to see Capital One acquired an interactive agency. Right, I, IBM has bought four agencies in the past few months. Yeah, so what's interesting is people are starting to realize that design is not something that should be icing on an already baked cake. It should be baked in from the beginning. Yeah. Well, you know, our world is very visual now, right? Our world is very interactive. Uh, it wasn't as interactive, you know, 10, 15 years ago. I mean, we had some flat print signs and some newspaper ads. Well, I think another thing too is designers tend to think about experiences and and so you know you kind of run into these instances where in the traditional world of graphic design, a company hires you, you come in, you do some work, the CEO comes back and says, My favorite color is purple, I want you to use purple. And but now, you know, we're starting to see designers coming back and saying, Listen, that doesn't make any sense strategically. There's actually re- actual reasons why we're choosing these colors and these typefaces because they work a certain way on the web. They evoke this certain style of emotion. It's not about just being someone's pixel pushing monkey, right? No, it, it, it is. I mean, I think you know, I, I've always loved design, and I have always loved. You know, we we came together to work with RGA, and why this is working so well is uh, just bringing those attributes. We look at these great engineers and these great product people, right? We always say. You know, you focus on building the product, we'll focus on building the brand. 
Right. Right. And I think that that's a beautiful thing too in itself is people just understanding the brand and agency understanding the brand being able to build that because a lot, there I think there are still a lot of people that just don't really understand what a brand is. Mm-hmm. So real quick, can you just explain for people, because you've used the term incubators and accelerators, and I, I, you'll often hear incubators mistakenly referred to as accelerators. And to my understanding, there's a difference, right? Can you sort of just explain the differences between those two? And then maybe kind of talk about how an accelerator works. Yeah, you know, so an, an incubator is something that's typically, typically not any fixed period of time. An incubator is there to give people places to work, to come up with ideas, to build their businesses at a longer period of time. An accelerator is something that has a typically start and end point uh, forcing factor, right? Whether it's one month, three months, six months, it doesn't matter. There's typically a forcing factor of an end event, an end date, where it's whether it's a demo day or investor day or the next cohort moves in and everyone has to move out. Um, Accelerators are meant really to take, you know, quickly, you have a product, you have an idea, you need to find a, a big part of product market fit, you need to find a quick way to bring it to market, you need to figure out how it works and design, and that, to force it into a box, I mean, you see a lot of these are 90 days, it always sounds like a lot of time to, to a lot of people, like, oh, we have so much time Honestly, like as soon as like the fifth week comes around in one of these programs, it, it, it's cascading faster than ever. But that pressure is really, really great, right? A lot of entrepreneurs, I don't want to say we're, we're not lazy, um, but we, we put things off, right? I keep on thinking about it. I keep on to make it better. I keep on to fine tune it. These forcing factors of making decisions in an accelerator really help. Um, and there's a hybrid model of this, which is you know, the studio model. The studio model is a combination of possible incubation, possible co-working, um, possible internal company development, right? So say that a studio inside of a, you know, a uh, pick, pick a brand, right? Equinox, I'm looking at their sign out in front of my window, right? Equinox decides to have a studio around sport and they want to develop something internally, but they can't do it through the typical internal challenge uh, channels. Instead, they can put an internal company or team inside of this. Uh, it's also a way of the studio to say, hey, there's a problem we really want to solve. We really want to make sure that, you know, random idea, athletes have socks which tell you how fast they run when they run between bases. Who knows? But there's no way we're ever going to develop that. We think it's really important. But we can actually hire an outside team or a studio team to work on this as part of this program. So a studio kind of can be any of those things altogether. So there's really accelerators, incubators, and studios are the three models that we see most often. So when you mentioned hiring an outside team, that is essentially, to my understanding, what Nike Plus did when they uh, powered, or when Techstars powered an accelerator for them. No, um, that was not to build any internal product. It was to build supporting, you know, uh, ecosystem supporting products around Nike Fuel and Nike Plus. Okay, so it was interesting. I think wasn't there uh, weren't, weren't there some some companies there that didn't actually focus on the wearables and things like that. I feel like I remember a basketball coaching iPad Coach app or something. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. Space had something in there, uh, and they're still alive and kicking over in Hong Kong, doing very well. 
building that out. And originally was going to incorporate fuel into the youth market, uh, but they pivoted away from fuel. Uh, I'd say the other one is Fit Reserve out of New York City, uh, which has become kind of the high-end boutique fitness uh, subscription service. So if I wanted to have you know a, a, a subscription to hit you know, 60, 70, 80, maybe more than that, different different boutiques here in New York City. Um, I could just subscribe to a flat rate and not have to have any one gym membership, but I could go to any classes I want to around the city at any point in time. Uh, there's some interesting ones that came out of that, right? Uh, I think wearables as a whole, if you watch Jawbone's news today and kind of where they're focusing on, if you watch Fitbit and where they're going, if you watch Pebble, if you watch the Nike watch, you know, no one's quite solved wearables. No right. one's quite solved health yet. Um, the consumer is still trying to make sense of why they want it, right? The addictive quality of how many steps I have, how many it took, how much sleep I got. I mean, is that really that exciting at the end of the day? Um, it's addicting for sure, right? The gamification of it. But at the end of the day, there's a lot more that can be done with it. And I think we're just getting to that stage now where we're starting to understand like Focus Motion in our Dodgers program released a new product last week, which will tell you what what exercise you're doing or what movement you're doing, whether it's a yoga pose or it's a push-up or you're lifting weights. Um, they'll tell you what you're doing. You don't have to tell it. And I think we're getting to that point with, with AIs and machine learning uh, that wearables are going to get a lot more interesting over the next year. Well, And I think a lot of you see a lot of um, athletic apparel companies putting – a lot of money into it as well. I mean, you mentioned Nike, but also Under Armour is putting a ton of money and in, in research into R and D, and they actually have bought a couple companies down in Austin. They have, yeah. And I say, you know, it's 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 interesting. Apparel companies are going to be really interesting in this space. Um, I think you know, don't count out you know Apple, don't count out Google, you know, don't count out some of the major healthcare companies. You know, I feel like I've read something. A few years back, and maybe you can confirm this since you probably look closer to the situation, that Nike was building something, some kind of maybe even hardware, and Steve Jobs went to them and was like, no, just build your software and put it in our app or into our phone or our iPods or whatever. Is that correct? Have you, do you, have you read something I, like that? I, I, I can't confirm or deny anything, but I think I've seen some similar articles about that. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that... Uh, they had a lot of different ideas, early ideation. The RGA team here in New York, you know, originally was it ten years ago, worked on that initial puck that went in the bottom of the Nike shoe. Yep, I remember that. So from the puck to the fuel band, right? From the original uh, way it worked into how it's working now, I think you know, they've gone through that whole journey here with Nike uh, along the way. And for sure, I mean, I definitely think you know, Apple gave them a lot of feedback. Uh, here's what's working. We've got, you know, how many millions of devices in people's hands do we know what they're looking for for apps? We know what they're using them for. Um, there's a lot a lot of intelligence. I'm pretty sure they, they gave them. Right. Uh, but from the hardware perspective, I think it's interesting because, you know, we still have, I have an, an Apple watch on today, but I don't, I don't use the Apple fitness solution for that. I use the Nike Plus and Nike running solution for that. Right. I still use that, and not it's not a brand affiliation. It's actually it just works better um, from a consumer journey, right? It really takes me to where I want to go and delivers what I want to deli- what, what I want to get out of it. So, kind of circling back to that Nike accelerator, 
you touched on it some, but it was powered by Techstars. What exactly does that mean, especially since they weren't necessarily building things intrinsically? Yeah, and so if you look at the vertical programs around Techstars, right, it was about partnering with companies, trying to find solutions to uh, problems that they're trying to explore, company, types of companies they may or may not want to invest in. Nike, you know, as an example, you know, Disney, as an example, invests in the companies that come into the program. Nike didn't take and did not take any equity in the companies coming into that program, um, which is you know a different model. They they as Nike didn't think they should put themselves in from an ownership stake standpoint because for an early stage company, an early stage market in fitness and wearables it could could hurt that company. So in an in an instance like that though, what's the value that Nike's providing to the startups? Oh, I mean access to. <laughs> Access to technology, access to people, access to partners, uh, access to more knowledge than anybody else had at that period of time. The amount of research and the amount of knowledge they had around that space was mind blowing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this wasn't something Nike doesn't, and Nike, whoever company, they don't enter into these things lightly. Right. You know, they, they usually go and build a beachhead and have a thesis and have a very sharp uh, point of view and do all of these different areas before they go in there. So uh, that was really to walk in and have access to the top thought leaders, not only in wearables, but in shoe design, you know, the Tinker and Toby Hatfields, you know, who are building Nike Free or building Nike you know, uh, Air Jordans, or to have these people and to give you that knowledge of the athlete, of the individual consumer, of what works, of retail rollout strategies, of go-to-markets from a digital standpoint. I mean, there were so many different great things they brought to the table. And you know, we've seen that over and over again. That's really where these partnership programs, you know, in an early-stage accelerator, uh, help out knowledge, access. Uh, you know, we're, our focus isn't as early-stage. We're not looking for majority of companies to be early stage companies that we invest in. We say we're, you know, we typically say we're growth agnostic. We're looking for seed A or B. Um, you know, anyone, they're still early in the, in the general scheme of things, right? It's not a series F company, but um, they have a product, they have market, they have fit, they have revenue, they have traction. They have some of those things which we can really make a big difference in. And we don't see those, you know, a lot with a Y Combinator or 500 or some of these other programs out there. They're really looking for these early, early stage seeds because they're very focused on being an investment firm where we're an investment firm, but that's not our primary driver of why we're trying to find the best companies out there. And I think being stage agnostic has really been beneficial to us and the impact we can drive in the types of companies we're looking for. So I find it super intriguing that these companies that are known for innovation, especially these big corporations. I just finished reading Phil Knight's bio, um, Shoe Dog, and and it's Shoe Dog, yeah. yeah, right from the beginning. Phil had uh, an appreciation for the arts, an appreciation for for concept, uh, and then if you look at Disney, there's a there's a kind of a, a sketch floating around somewhere where all roads to every aspect of the business point to the creative department. Oh yeah, that's a, that's a great one. I've seen that too. Yeah, and so it kind of re- just reemphasizes what we were talking about, design being baked in. But uh, you know, I even noticed recently Nike is hiring an entrepreneur in residence. I know. I, I think I put that out there. I found that uh, was sent to oh, me. Oh, did you? What, okay. A week and a half, two weeks ago. Oh, you ago. know, maybe I saw that in Slack. That might be where I saw that. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> there's a, you know, but I think that, that there, there's a, I mean, I'm trying to think how to best approach this. I mean, there's a lot going on right now. Uh, the world's not slowing down. You know, we're not seeing at the trough as we would normally see in some of these markets. And these big companies, while they have internal innovation, right? There's internal innovation. You I mean, we, we see Google, what they announced last week at IO. Oh mm. my God, it's amazing, right? Doesn't mean they're still not buying companies. Right. They're still not looking for talent. They're still not looking for resources. It doesn't mean that, you know, Nike is not out looking for more innovation around the world. It doesn't mean that, you know, whatever brand, they're doing it inside. They have a roadmap. They have a really good idea of the next one, three, five, seven, ten years internally, right? Because this is how Coca-Cola, these are how these big companies function. What they don't have oftentimes is the ability to sprint. The ability to sprint when something comes up. The ability to sprint and go try something in a safe way. And this is what uh, you know, a lot of these accelerators, uh, you know, think of on-demand delivery uh, for goods and merchandise. Mm-hmm. And while you know, a lot of these big companies we work with, Macy's, Westfields, Walmarts, could do this, they're, why don't they part? They could partner with someone else. And I'd say lessen you know, the risk, the liability, uh, and just focus really on the partnership and delivering the entire unified customer experience through their channels and bringing their expertise to a marriage with you know, an Uber on-demand service or a ship or a happy returns or whatever it might be uh, that's focused on doing this and has built something that works. So there's always going to be internal, there's always going to be external, uh, and there's always going to be partnerships between companies. Uh, they're never going to do it all in-house. So changing past just a little bit, but it kind of still falls in line with innovation, internal innovation. In, in the NCAA published in their fall 2015 publication that technology could possibly be something that needs to be heavily uh, monitored from a regulation regulation perspective in the NCAA because it may provide an extra benefit to the wealthier schools. And I actually wrote an article refuting that with the primary point being that technology is actually equal playing ground if you think about it from the aspect that each of these schools have hungry entrepreneurial students that are eager to, eager to create their own ideas. And for them, you look at $20,000 to $50,000 invested into their company, which may happen to affect how things are done on the field or on the court, that would go super long distance for them. So it seems to well, me... Yeah. It, it seemed, and if you look at if you look at the schools that uh, go to like the U.S. News and World Reports and these types of things, and look at the schools that have the best entrepreneurial programs, they're not the Alabamas of the world. They're not the ones that have the big multi-million dollar uh, a year revenues in athletics. So it's it's. Um, but I'll tell you. I mean, I've been into USC and UCLA's both entrepreneurial programs that are giving seed funding to internal student teams to do things around sport. Oregon State has a program around it. Nebraska has a program around it. I mean, they're they're spinning up. Um, so these are. Is it coming directly from the athletic department? Some is coming from the athletic department. Some some is coming from uh, alumni donors that are choosing to set up these funds to invest. University of Oregon actually has had one for a long, long, long time uh, that's been done, funded by the School of Business. Um, And I think there's a bunch of these types of programs out there. And unfair advantage, sure. I mean, the unfair advantage doesn't really come from, well, I don't know. 
it comes from recruiting, right? It starts with recruiting. Well, I mean, let's be honest. The the advantage, if you just look at the architecture at some of these places, the the, the it's already unfair. Right. I mean, you can't really just say, oh, tech, tech, you know, all right, you come in and you have this massive facility at, we'll just use Oregon, for example. Right. I mean, they have beautiful facilities, OregonGridiron.com, beautiful site built to, to showcase it. You know, like a, a, an, I went to a school in the Ohio Valley Conference. It was a football school, but it was essentially Division One AA when that existed. They can't compete with that. But what they can do is they do have an Internet connection. They do have many students that are hungry to to create ideas. So they can start putting just a little bit of money into those ideas, and maybe it would they, they would see some ROI eventually, like on the field and financially. You know, I, I'm so I, I I live on both sides. So I have you know kids that that train a lot and and work out a lot in football, track, basketball. I coach as well. You know, one thing I've started to learn more actually, technology has been a massive leveler. Uh, where majority of the kids I know, so saying, you know junior high through high school and even up to college, it's not what they're learning from their coaches from a training standpoint. They're actually finding more things from a training perspective online in YouTube, in Vine, and other places with other athletes that they idolize who are passing that knowledge down, um, you know, about how to stretch, how to train, how to eat. Uh, and they're actually searching for this content out there. So from a training perspective, I think it's pretty even. Not saying that everyone's going to have access to DNA testing. Not saying everyone's going to have access to you know. I mean, the Dodgers facility has uh, one of those chirogenic uh, chambers that right, automatically right. plunge you to negative you know two hundred and thirty degrees in two seconds. We won't have that, right? They won't have a eighty-six million dollar football operations center like Oregon has, but they will have these students that can come up with things. They will have other pieces of content and research and materials to to create better offenses, defenses, training, nutrition programs, the building blocks really of building great athletic programs. Um, and I think as we start seeing more open sourcing of things like Focus Motion and others, there are technology platforms and APIs and SDKs that are going to be available to anyone. So these student teams with 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 funding can go, out, can go out and hack and build with a you know a 3D printer and some you know basic you know development knowledge, a new wearable that might actually solve a problem for an athletic program. A ball, you know, something in women's volleyball, something in men's football, something in golf. Who knows? So, um, so, so this is what's interesting to me. This is going to sound weird, but outside of the in-house world of sport, there seems to be a lot of innovation. But in-house you tend to get a lot of people that have worked in sports forever, right? And it's, it's, it tends to be, for lack of a better word, incestual. Job opportunities get passed to people that are in a, other sure. athletic yeah. departments. Everyone essentially copies what everyone else does. Um, there, there doesn't seem intrinsically to be a lot of innovation overall. And when I say innovation, I don't mean necessarily coming up with a new social media campaign, but I mean literally reinventing the way that a college sports business is done, from everything from ticketing uh, uh, to... Um, well, I mean, I would, I would look at... Uh, you know, even though I went to Oregon State, I'd look at the University of Oregon. They've radically changed of how everything works, from recruiting to training to education uh, to facilities. I mean, you you name it. Uh, they've they've they want to be everything first. We look at Oregon State has just released to all alumni under under, under ten years uh, in in length since left they left school is a twenty nine dollar a month I think or nineteen dollar a month unlimited ticket package where you can go to every single sporting event at a flat cost. They're changing the ticketing model. 
Um, we're seeing University of Nebraska doing a lot of things around past student athletes, helping them build sports technology companies. I mean, I think that it's happening. And there's a bunch of rant, I mean, very fringe stuff. I mean, I just, I don't know if you read the article last night about, you know, the Dodgers using laser, laser measuring uh, at the Mets, you know, this week of actually figuring out where they want to defensively place their fielders. Like, what? You're a laser measurer? You can do that? I mean, <laughs> I think that, you know, innovation comes from everywhere. Um, and I think that I, there's a probably, if we could ever put together a, a big book of all the people that have done these things, there's more things going on than any of us realize on at, at every different level. And it doesn't have to be a multi-million dollar expense. Uh, a lot of these things are actually quite simple. Are we going to see college athletic departments ever creating a, almost software as a service businesses or products that could provide recurring revenue and then they other than things like sponsorships i wouldn't rule it out um i think we're gonna see somebody also look how major league baseball and bam has done this right now you've got uh, other technology companies using their streaming platform now got nhl has outsourced their digital op operations to MLB, right? Um, I think we're going to start seeing where you're successful, people looking at it as a revenue stream, right? There's sp- sponsorship and there's ticket sales and there's merchandise, but what else is there? Um, and I think that if we, we see some of these universities solve some of these problems, I would say it'll roll out conference by conference first, um, you know, rolling out into the Pac-12, and there might be some of these are already going on that I'm not aware of rolling out, right? I, I would assume we're going to see some of these. And they will happen just like they did with MLB BAM, where they'll roll out inside of that organization or that league or that conference. Uh, and then it'll, it'll grow from there. I just love, I would just love to see a Mark Cuban esque type personality come in and just shake it up, just flat out go on and be an <laughs> athletic director, you know, and just change things. Cause the, the, the gripes that I'm hearing a lot, obviously from doing this podcast and listening to, I get a lot of people that contact me. Oh, you know, I really want to do that, but you know, the environment is this way or whatever. People don't listen to me and these types of things is, is it's just a very old school and ancestral mentality. And so I almost think it's going to take an entrepreneurial person to come in and just say, I don't care what people think. I'm changing things up. But I think we already have that in coaching now. And I think we're already starting to see that with younger athletic directors, right? It just takes time. Mm-hmm. This hasn't been around forever, right? And it's tough when you always say, uh, even with these big corporations I work with, like you're moving someone's cheese. Someone's been getting paid and promoted because of A, B, or C for the last X years. And all of a sudden you're coming in and while it might be better, it might be faster, it might be easier, it might help them be more successful, you're moving someone's cheese of how they get promoted or paid. Um, and those are things that are tough to mess with someone. When they know, well, if I just keep doing it like this, I, I'll, I'll keep getting what I've get, what I've gotten the past few years. Right. Uh, and that's a really, really hard thing. And that's a big shift. But we're seeing younger people, uh, right, that are coming in from a coaching perspective. We're seeing younger people coming in from the athletic management, from the school boards. It's just a, it's just a culture change. It's just a generation change. It'll happen. So kind of switching paths here and moving more towards the Dodgers accelerator. We're starting to see professional teams think more about innovation. For example, I've always believed that the Sacramento Kings, because of their owner, he has that really entrepreneurial nature and his belief in technology and startups will eventually reap an ROI on the court from the things that they're doing. We just saw the Philadelphia 76ers launch an innovation hub. 
Uh, and then you guys, obviously, uh, to my knowledge, the Dodgers were the first professional team to really focus on startups for, as far as opening up a, an, an application process into an accelerator. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And, you know, I, I think you know, it was the, you know, the aqua, the, I guess the ownership group, right? When you got Magic Johnson, mm-hmm. you got Peter Goober, uh, you got Tucker Kane, who came out of Guggenheim as a CFO. These individuals understand, right? How to, how to how to work in this this realm? How to take these risks and challenges? How to go outside of uh, you know, the comfort zone to go out and find solutions to problems? Um, and a lot of this came also from when Guggenheim bought the Dodgers. They were approached over and over and over and over again um, by a lot of different startups, and they you know, needed a good way to work with them and a good way to frame it and to control it. And this became uh, this program, you know, came from that. It became a good way in which to make this make this work and make sure we have you know tracked. KPIs coming out of it and tracked ways in which we're doing business uh, and making decisions around these types of startup companies. So, you know, it was great to to be first. Now we're seeing, you know, we've got one in Paris that's that's spawned up. We've got, you know, uh, the one in St. Louis that's, you know, Stadia Ventures that's popped up. We've got the 76ers. We've got, but we also have, you know, if you even go before, you know, the formalizing what we've done, you've got Mark Cuban, right? (laughs) You've now got all these, you know, tech billionaire team owners, right? You've got the Warriors. Look what they're doing in technology. Look what they're doing in fan engagement. You know, you've got, you know, the, the Blazers, right? Paul Allen, he's been doing tons of things forever. Uh, so we've got a lot of these different groups that are doing these things, and I think we've just really made it into a formalized process. So as far as the Dodgers Accelerator uh, works, how does the partnership work with RGA as the agency providing seed money does the money kind of go into a pot a pot or is it essentially the agencies providing services how does that part work and this came from a you know joint venture opportunity with uh when the dodgers were acquired by guggenheim and guggenheim started looking at a lot of different opportunities in which to work with startups and solve problems inside of the organization uh, for the Dodgers, whether it was from athlete performance or in venue management. And they sort of seen a lot more companies. They hadn't, they hadn't really realized this market really existed at the level that it exists. Even now, it's like three times bigger than it was a year ago. Um, and with RGA, I was able to put a back around working with these startup companies and doing the diligence and the research. I mean, think about, you know, even just looking at you know, 600 and some companies last the last program alone to find 10. That's a lot of time. There's no way that the organization that's focused on winning baseball games and building great athletes could be focused on 100% of the time. So with our staff in the joint venture of being able to augment and, and search and uh, do the diligence and do the understanding and work with the teams in program uh, is really how it, it's worked great uh, for us and for the Dodgers. Uh, really helped us discover teams and companies we might have not found on our own uh, each way by joining up together. So you mentioned, I think the words you used were stage agnostic. Is that correct? I can't remember exactly if that was... Exactly, stage agnostic. So we're really looking, you know, if we look at companies, we've had companies that, you know, Sarah uh, from Pro Day up to uh, a company like Conduct, right, which is 
you know, came in with 30-some employees and left with 50-some employees. Um, you know, they're all different levels, different stages. So just just for people that are listening, let's say, theoretically speaking here, let's say I'm a, a designer in-house at a college football team or something. And I have an idea for recruiting software, maybe a, a recruit management tool, let's say, to let coaches kind of keep up with who they've called, you know, what they can do, NCAA rules and whatever, that type of thing. Um, and I build out as a designer, I have the talent and the skill set to build out some visual mock-ups. Is that too early to get to start on something like this? Or are you looking for someone that actually has at least some revenue? So nothing's too early, nothing's too late, right? Stage agnostic. But ideally, uh, depending on the idea and the team, right? Ideally, we want to find someone that has built out the product that's working and is being used by X amount of teams, athletic directors, coaches, recruiters in this case, um, and has some type of uh, metric showing what someone's willing to pay for it or is paying for it. Whether that's you know, five thousand dollars a month or a hundred thousand dollars a month. It's just, you know, it kind of runs the gamut. Right. So is it something is it something that the market wants? Is it something the market has shown they want? Is it something that we can say we can provide additive substantial value from the Dodgers and from RGA side that's really gonna make an impact for this company? So our whole thing that we try to focus on is being additive. And that's always a key word I, I use a lot of founders I talk to because, you know, we don't want to do a business boot camp. We don't want to teach you, you know, the one-on-one. So we don't, we, we can do those things if it's needed. So the company, but we really want to focus on building out this brand and this product and scaling it from a res, you know, res, revenue positive standpoint. Um, that's really where we can be the most additive. So w- uh, just kind of, kind of wrapping up here and, we're seeing a lot of athletes get involved in investing. Uh, some of the more famous ones would be Kobe retired and went full first into a full force into his venture firm, Kobe Inc. And I don't know if you heard that Bill, if you listen to Bill Simmons, but there was a podcast with Chris Saka where he just talked about his ruthlessness in in the startup game <laughs> or wanting to get into the startup game as a, uh, you know, in addition to how he was on the court, uh, Steph Curry is involved with an app that was co-founded from by some former Nike employees. LeBron James has launched some things, including uninterrupted. There's, there's a, there's a ton, there's a ton. And it's why, why wouldn't they, right? They have the money, they have the resources, they have the knowledge. They are athletes, right? They know how the game is played. They know how you train for it. They know they're greater smart money. Right, it's not not just money; it's smart money. In a lot of these cases, based on the company, um, and I don't think we're we're going to see that. We're not going to see that slow down. I think we're only going to see it accelerate. Okay, so do you think that because because a lot of the guys that you hear are obviously these really high net worth guys with the big that probably that actually probably make more money on their endorsements than they do in their contracts with the teams. Are we going to see a lot? Are you hearing yourself? Maybe even a lot of maybe some of the lower level athletes, the guys that are the six, six, seventh, eighth men on the bench, or even coaches that are kind yeah, of getting into the space. Yeah, and we've also got, and we've also we've also seen some of those athletes, right? Say lower on the bench, they're starting their own companies after they're done playing professional sports, where they had an idea and they're giving themselves the seed funding on uh, the runway to go out and do it. Um, there's some in particular which. I can't mention who they are, but there's some we've been looking at. Um, 
I think that you will see this happen more and more, and it's a great thing, just as you would in the medical field of doctors going out and doing startup companies after working in medicine all their lives. I mean, it's, it's just it's a natural thing. And I think that sports tech, right, has finally hit this kind of inflection point. You know, I look at how many companies I looked at in the first year around the world to how many companies I'm seeing nowadays. And now you're starting to see even second generation, you know, remix ideas already in a very fast cycle. So, you know, there's a lot of the same things going on. A lot of people doing the same things. Just something, somebody that did something that didn't work out was just too early and seeing somebody else do it again. So we're going to see athletes get involved just like we did with celebrities, you know, years ago, just like we have with musicians, um, you know, beats. You think of what a successful model, right? For, for Dr. Dre. Um, you're seeing, you know, Snoop go to where his expertise is, right? He's, he's investing in weed. Nas, Nas, the rapper Nas. I mean, I heard him on, oh, yeah. uh, on something, you know. Carmelo yeah. Anthony's I mean, huge, it's, obviously. It's, it's another way to diver- diversify a portfolio, right? If they're not putting all their money in, in technology startups, they're still buying real estate. They're still buying all sorts of things. Um, I take Kobe, amazing, right? We've seen Kobe. We've seen we have Magic, um, right, with us. Uh, very, very, very active in all sorts of things. And he has seen in everything, technology to, you know, movies and films to... You know, race team, you name it. He's in Starbucks. He's in movie chains. He's in everything. Um, and we're just seeing as good business people, right? Mark Cuban is not just a technology investor. He's in everything. Right. Um, and I think we'll start to see the diversified athlete, right? Athletes being smart with their money. Athletes putting a certain percentage in different places. I think we'll start seeing more athlete-founded companies. Um, and I think, you know, past athletes actually make some of the best teammates, uh, people that really understand what it takes, the commitment, right? The long hours, <laughs> the pain, the suffering, right? They've done it, whether it was in, you know, grade school or junior high or high school or college or the pros. Um, the athletes make great coworkers. Well, and they can definitely solve the deeper problems in sport, the things that are happening in the locker room or places where us as a public are just not getting. For sure, for sure. And, you know, and you, you talked about some things earlier on. We see leagues, conferences, and this, universities. You know, will we see will the players' associations, associations become other platforms, right? Because they have a lot of control. The athlete is a, is a really interesting situation right now of how many things we will track and monitor and who owns what and where it goes and how it's used. And who has, I mean, there's so many issues to be worked out for the next five years. Um, we're just really at this really good starting point. And I think to have more athletes involved is actually going to be more beneficial to all of us. Awesome, man. Well, why don't you give listeners, uh, and just wrapping up here, where they can follow you online, maybe where if they want to get more information about the Accelerator, how to apply to the Accelerator if they're far enough along? Sure. There's uh, DodgersAccelerator.com. Uh, Not too hard to find. Um, you can find it in there. They, June 10th actually is the uh, final day for application. Uh, we're winding up here, right, with 10 days out. Uh, the first cohort will start at the end of, uh, end of August in, in Playa Vista in L.A. Um, demo day will be around the uh, November 10th, single as last year. Uh, you can find, you know, at Dodgers Excel on Twitter and on Instagram. You can find, I'm, I'm easy to find in stock. You can find me about anywhere are you running the Dodgers Excel I, account, Twitter? 
Uh, I there's a there's a collection of people that are involved. Oh, okay. Collection of people that are involved, and you can find me individually just at DT Boyd. So DT Boyd. Anyway, well, I appreciate it, and thank you for having me. Yeah, man, appreciate uh, appreciate you shedding some knowledge uh, on the industry, and hopefully, some people that are not familiar will want to start getting familiar. And and best of luck with the actual accelerator. That sounds great. Thanks so much for having us. We'll talk to you later. All right, man. For the next episode of the podcast, the founders and partners of Infinite Scale Design Group are joining the podcast. Infinite Scale is an environmental design firm based out of Salt Lake City, Utah that focuses on environmental graphic design, brand activation, signage systems, and partnership integration, such as donors, sponsors, and naming rights. The partners, Amy Lucas... Cameron Smith and Molly Mazzolini will be joining the show to discuss their firm's story, entrepreneurship, as well as touching on a few recent projects, which include working for the college football playoff in 2015 and 2016, as well as the 2016 NHL All-Star Game in Nashville, Tennessee. In the meantime, if you want to check out their work, it's at infinitescale.com, and you can follow their firm on Twitter at InfiniteScale. Big thanks again to Dylan Boyd of the RGA Dodgers Accelerator for coming aboard the podcast. As he mentioned, you can find him on Twitter personally at DT Boyd or follow the Dodgers Accelerator at Dodgers Excel. A-C-C-E-L. If you are far enough along in your startup idea that you want to apply, the application process of the accelerator is still open through June 10th. You can find out more details at dodgersaccelerator.com. If you're interested in hearing more episodes, then head over to makersofsport.com slash episodes to check out previous interviews or listen to the original halftime episodes where I discuss business, entrepreneurship, and freelance in the sports industry. As mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, all future halftime episodes will be available to community members only. If you want to support the podcast, you can join the community at makersofsport.com slash community. This is not advertising supported, it's listener supported. So if you get value from the content, then please vote with your dollars, so to speak, to join the community and help keep this thing going. Recently in our community, we've had Q&As with sports branding pioneers such as Todd Radom and Joe Bosack. Our June 2016 Q&A is with episode 27 guest and good friend Bethany Heck of the Evis League. She'll be giving her talk on typography that she recently did for Creative South and a few other conferences. For those that can't afford to join the community at this very moment or just for casual listeners, have no fear. All interview episodes will be free forever. If you do, however, miss the halftime episodes and can't sign up for the community at this time, you can sign up for Weekend Reads, which is a weekly newsletter where I write exclusive content and share the things that I'm reading, articles that I find interesting, or just things that inspire me for the week. In addition, on that list, you'll be notified in advance of upcoming guests and get podcast show notes delivered right to your inbox. Going to makersofsport.com slash email, entering your email will keep you in touch with the happenings of the podcast and its future. Lastly, please take one to two minutes and head over to makersofsport.com slash iTunes. Hit the five star and write about your experience with the show. If you've gotten value from myself or any of the guests on the show, then please share the podcast and rate the content so that others can discover that value for themselves as well. As always, I'll accept likes or ratings in Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast application of your choice. Before I sign off, I want to give a special thanks to Troy Rudiger of the Sports Tech HQ community, STHQ. 
uh, for letting me take over Snapchat for a day, the particular day that this episode was recorded. You can follow Sport Tech HQ on Twitter and find out more about him and the community that he's building. I'm at T. Adam Martin on Twitter. The show is at Makers of Sport. Until next time, have a good week. We'll be right back.